Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, how are you today? So March Madness is over. For some of you, that's like, yes, it's over. For some of you, it's like, I don't really care. For people like me, it's like, I have to wait another year. <laughs> so one of my favorite headlines that came out of the uh, March Madness tournament this year was, uh, was a, 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 an article about how balanced the championship teams were. And the article went on to say it's because the, uh, they were the two, largest te- the two tallest teams with the two shortest coaches. So they were balanced, right? We also had the Go to Quest Bracket Challenge this year, and so give me a drum roll, and let's announce the winner is Vanita Rogers. So Vanita, you get bragging rights, and you get a free drink in the cafe. Yes, I'll leave this on your daughter's stand here, and she can make sure and get it to you. So... We had a lot of fun. Notice, notice that uh, I only had less than half as many points as you. I, was, I, I felt really lucky to make it in the top ten this year. We all had a fatal flaw in our brackets this year. We were all Zag haters. I don't think anybody had them in the championship game. But i got to tell you, none of you have the emotional baggage to avoid the Zags like I've got. Uh, it was 1998, we moved to Oregon to start consulting with churches on the West Coast. And on 1999, March Madness, I was in Spokane uh, preaching at a church there. And uh, I just got up, you know, I mean, for me, I love March Madness, so it's really easy. This, I promise this is the last March Madness in a sermon until next year, okay? But it's really easy for me to put an illustration about March Madness in every sermon during March Madness. And so I figured, well, I got a good one for this Sunday. So I got up in front of this church and I said, you know, uh, uh, th- th- this is just such an inspiring story about this no-name school who no one knows about, who most of America can't tell you where they're from who's making this amazing run against all odds. And I also said, not Gonzaga, I said, and it's this team called Gonzaga, which is a little bit like if you're in Oregon saying, I'm from Oregon, or like when somebody who will remain unnamed who might be talking to you came here eight years ago and got up in front of all of you and said, about, what about that Buckeye team and that, that red and silver team? I didn't realize that day that Spokane, uh, Washington was the home of Gonzaga just a few miles away from where I was preaching, and it wasn't the best first impression to win friends and influence people, but I think the people in the church that day were so nice, most of them thought I was seriously joking and didn't realize I was absolutely ignorant that day, so they, they let me off easy. I must admit, March Madness this year wasn't as fun without the Buckeyes in the hunt. Everybody seemed a little more depressed. I think many of us felt a little bit more like this Northwestern fan here. Uh, in fact, don't, don't look at that. Isn't that crazy? I mean, if you took that person out of the arena and stuck him at a crime scene, you would think that their best friend had just been shot, and de- shot dead in front of him, right? But still, without the Buckeyes in the picture, many of us still get into it. We love the competition because we get to pick brackets because brackets are supposed to make us feel like winners, we think. My best bracket... I was 5.9 millionth place. My worst one, I was 9.6 millionth place. It's just, you know, that's just, 
I wear that with a badge of courage and pride. It just makes me feel like such a winner, right? How many of you noticed uh, as your brackets got progressively more broken that you lost interest? Question, why is that? And it's simply this. It's because we love being a part of the winning side. It doesn't matter whether it's the sports or politics or religion or work or uh, relationship popularity or a social cause that we're part of. There's an innate part of us that wants to win, to be the best. And even when we have no ability to impact the outcome, because all we can do is sit on our couch and pick the winner and hope that they win, you know, we still love it. When our teams are doing good, we have more energy, more excitement, more anticipation. When our teams aren't doing so well, well, and our brackets are going to pot, we feel a little less energy and we may be even a bit depressed, right? Today, we remember a moment in which the crowds went crazy, cheering for their winning pick in a bracket that happened about 2,000 years ago. Today is Palm Sunday. And what we traditionally celebrate today is what's often referred to in Jesus' life as the triumphal entry. This is the, this is the pregame raucous human tunnel of the soon-to-be victor walking into town, arriving on the playing field. The crowds are convinced that Jesus is the one who has already won the Final Four, and he's going to stomp through the championship game now in convincing fashion. So today we're concluding our series like Jesus and if you're here today and you, you go, I, I don't, I, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. I don't know yet whether I'm really a disciple of his or a, or a Christian. I suspect you're at least here because you like something about Jesus. You, you may not be fully convinced of all the Bible says about him and Christians say about him and all that kind of stuff, but, but there's something about Jesus you like. Well, today you right alongside the rest of us are going to get to look at a pivotal moment in Jesus' life to learn what I think is a really important lesson that's critical to each and every one of us. If we want to learn to not just like Jesus, but like the person, be like the person we like and have a vibrant faith. We see Jesus in this moment pulling out of all of us something that's true of every single one of us, that this hope, this desire to win, to be significant in life. But then Jesus also does something that really confounds us by not being what we really expect of him. In so doing, I think what we're going to see today is Jesus gives us really keen insight into what it means to become like him in the mission of our life, in the purpose of our life. Now, even though this week is a, next week is a standalone message with Easter, we're going to continue kind of in that like Jesus series idea. Next week, we're, we're going to, next week, we're going to look at who Jesus is, and we're going to look at what it means to be like him in a way that I think will inspire you, and I think in a way that I know can bring profound healing perspective to you, your life, and your friends' lives, especially if you are a person who occasionally or maybe regularly struggles with the idea of whether God is good or cares in a world where so much difficult stuff happens. And you still probably want to find that life that Easter promises, and I think you'll find that next week. So I want to encourage you to invite your friends, invite your family, invite the five you're praying for. Uh, go on, like our Facebook page, and like the Facebook preview we're doing of Easter on that, and share that. Help us reach a lot of people with that this week. But today's triumphal entry, 
that we're going to deal with is found in all four of the eyewitness accounts. We're going to focus mostly on John's account found in John 12. And and this happens mere days after Jesus has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And it reads like this. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival. This festival, remember, it's it's the Passover festival. This is one of the religious highlights of the year. 100 to 150,000 travelers come in to celebrate and seek God's forgiveness and deliverance and provision for their lives. It goes on, it says, The crowds heard that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And then it goes on, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, and he is referring back to the Old Testament now, quoting that. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And verse 16 is really important. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these, these things had been done, had been written about him, and these things had been done to him. In other words, this is a really exciting moment. The real meaning of it is just going over their heads. They're just, they're just missing what's happening in the moment, but it's really exciting. It goes on, it says, now the crowd was, that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. So the buzz has been growing and, and spreading for a couple weeks now. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. I mean, sure, wouldn't you go out to meet someone who had raised somebody from the dead and that dead person that they had raised was standing right next to him? I mean, if, if we go out and have all this raucous following all the walking dead, this, is, this, is, this ups that, right? The text goes on and says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. This is a really strange, exciting, confounding passage. And Jesus has this place in history that he both compels us and at the same time he tends to confound us. I mean, just look at his life. He lived on earth about 33 years, 30 of which was primarily in obscurity as a carpenter in an out-of-the-way town. Three years he was in uh, as a public figure. And, and you look at those three years. In his first year, he tells these enduringly wise parables, many of we we still tell today, but the people didn't really fully get them. And he performs miracles. And the second year, he spends a lot more time directly teaching his few followers, but continues to perform miracles. And the, the crowds continue to grow. And the third year, the crowd swell to the point that Jesus can't even go into the towns and villages anymore because of the traffic jams he creates with the crowds following him. Can you imagine? I'm sure in the third year, his disciples were thinking, this is the year we're going to go big, right? And if you watch the progression of the disciples' belief in him, this whole time the disciples are becoming increasingly clear on who Jesus is. He's, he's more than a good man. He's more than a prophet. They become convinced that he is the Messiah, that he is really God as he said he is. But they didn't understand that. The story, they didn't understand that the story being written before their eyes right now was coming to an end so that a different greater story could be told. Have you ever been sure of your pick and your prediction of a winner? Maybe it was March Madness. Maybe it was a new boss. Maybe it was a new job. Maybe it was a new initiative that you predicted. This is going to push things over the top, and we're going to finally succeed. We're going to finally win big. And then you picked wrong. You predicted wrong, and you're disappointed, right? 
See, this is what's happening in this triumphal entry of Jesus. They were receiving Jesus like he was the king they had always hoped for. I mean, for them, laying the palm branches before Jesus for the for kind of the car, red carpet for him would be like if we went to Washington, D.C., and we met somebody coming into Washington who we thought was going to be our national savior, and we decided to quickly grab every American flag we could and lay them out as a red carpet in front of this person. I mean, for Israel, the palms were the symbol of free Israel. It was like them laying their national flag down for him. It meant that much to them, while they were, uh, and while they were singing the song Hosanna, you know, we many if you, if you grew up in church, you heard worship songs that to, to God. And but in Jesus' day, this word Hosanna also had political overtones. It meant this is this is the time for our new King to come and throw off Roman rule and reestablish our great empire as we were before. You see, they were celebrating. Jesus, which is a good thing. But the reality is they were celebrating not the Jesus who was there. Rather, they were celebrating the Jesus they wanted to be there in that moment. And just like the people of that day, we tend today to project on Jesus who we want Jesus to be, rather than letting Jesus project on us who he wants us to be. We like Jesus for what we need and want from him as consumers, but instead of wanting to become like Jesus, we end up being these would-be disciples who are molding the master rather than the master mold us as the disciples. See, many times Jesus is so compelling to us, but he's only compelling to us because we redefine him to be who we want him to be. And then he comes in our situation, and we expect victory and good faith to result in X for us, but Jesus doesn't live up to our expectations. And then the amazing thing is we hold it against him. Or we feel like we need to apologize for what we've made Jesus into towards other people, rather than asking ourselves the question, did I let Jesus be Jesus and who he really wants to be in my life. See, it's human nature for us to project on others what we want for ourselves. We do it all the time, not just in faith where we get disappointed with God and who he is or isn't in us. We do it in friendship. And, and, and when friend doesn't, a friend doesn't live up to what we make them into being, or, 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 or we end up having conflict. We do it in every single marriage that's ever existed. Early on in marriage, we love our spouse, not so much because we truly love them, but because of the way they make us feel about ourselves, wanted, loved, mature, sexy, desired, whatever it is we need in order to feel good about ourselves. And so much of the conflict in our relationships stems from us projecting onto others what we want them to be and the dissonance that's created by them not living up to what we want them and ask them to be rather than truly loving people around us for who they are, where they are, and what they're doing right then in life. See, for all of us repeatedly in life, we come to this place of having to wrestle with, I think, this really important question, and that is this, kind of the whole series, do I really want to become like Jesus? Not what I want him to be, not what I expect him to be, 
But do I truly want to follow Jesus in who he really is and become like him? I can remember many moments in life when the wind of life wasn't what I wanted, when the wind actually felt like loss in life and forced me to repeatedly come back to this question of who is Jesus and do I really want to be like him? I mean, a few times that struggle has brought me to the point of doubting my faith in God, both before deciding to follow Jesus and after deciding to follow Jesus, even after becoming a pastor getting to that place of questioning and that doubt. One of the key lessons that has to be settled deep down for each of us to become like Jesus is getting to this honest place of really realizing if there is no God and you believe in God, you can't be free because you believe in a superstition that that keeps you trapped. On the other hand, If there is a God, and I don't believe in that God, and I don't follow him, I will also never be free. Because true freedom isn't the right to do what you want. It's the privilege to live freely in the fullest potential of the good way God designed you to live in life. Think about it this way. A high-performance race car isn't free when it's dropped in the ocean. It's not free when it's dropped in a muddy bog. A high-performance race car is only free when it's able to be driven in its perfect form on a racetrack designed to maximize its abilities under the environmental circumstances that best suit it. See, I think you're like me in this. What I want more than anything in life is I want the freedom to find the maximum meaning and maximum potential for my life. But the problem is, which all of humanity faces, is we project on God, we project on Jesus what we want him to be rather than letting Jesus be who he is and us becoming like him, made in his image. That day... 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, they thought that was going to be the day that Jesus drove the stake in the ground and they began the great empire that they longed for. See, we, that's such human nature. We may live in a democratic republic without kings, yet even so, we as humans are always trying to find kings. I mean, think about our political process. That's what's so disturbing about it, isn't it? Deep down, we're trying to find a king, whether it's a president who's going to lead us to the kingdom that we want, a Supreme Court justice or a governor. We invest our hopes and dreams in establishing power and kingdom and following the winner who will get us what we want in life as consumers. But the problem is we always discover instead disenchantment. Because we all too soon learn that the kings are all the same. They live for their kingdom, not ours. They serve their kingdom. They don't really serve us. We end up serving them. See, Jesus was and is celebrated by so many people, by almost everybody in the world in some way. Because within each of us, we have this need to celebrate something bigger than ourselves. Something that's a winner, something that we worship as worthy to lead us, as worthy of us placing our hopes and dreams upon. 
And the problem is that that drive within us is directed to something, whether it's God or whether it's intelligence or wealth or strength or public recognition or any other measure of winning and success. If we don't have God in that place, we are a dead idol and life becomes confounding. Notice verse 14. The crowds begin to go wild as Jesus approaches the top of the hill. And what does Jesus do? He tells his disciples to go get a donkey, right? Now, I know I'm not a script writer for movies, but this is kind of a climactic moment, don't you think? This is the big reveal. This is the big public burst of momentum and change, setting up the beginning of the end of oppression and the bursting forth of hope. And the writers and the the eyewitness accounts decide to talk about donkey. Now, I know from the text here, we know that it it fulfills an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, uh, but we also know that the disciples didn't understand this till after it was all done. And if they didn't understand it, I'm sure the crowds probably didn't understand it either in that moment. And certainly the Romans who were there in that moment didn't understand that because if you were coming in as a king, if you were coming in as a leader, the power and prestige for kings would mean you don't ride a donkey, you ride the biggest most beautiful white stallion you can find, right? But here's Jesus, not just on a donkey. He's on the colt of a donkey, a small, still growing, just beyond baby donkey. I mean, come on, picture this with me just for a moment. Jesus sitting on a donkey, having to hold his feet up so his sandals don't scrape on the ground, right? People looking at Jesus wondering, can that little donkey even hold them? I mean, this is just a really powerful, majestic picture, right? Do you see it? It'd be like me running for political office and trying to make a big impression in a parade. And instead of riding in the back of a $500,000 Rolls Royce convertible, I choose to go down the parade route in a rusty little kid's tricycle, squeaking my way down the parade route, trying not to get my, trying to pedal without getting my knees jammed in the handlebars while I'm trying to smile and make a good impression. I mean, that's what it's like. Can you imagine having picked Jesus for your bracket and then seeing him come into Jerusalem on a donkey? What does that mean for us who are wanting to become like him, especially in the focus of our mission and our purpose in life. Here's what I think it means. Jesus wasn't focused on how he could mobilize people to serve him. He was focused on how he could mobilize people to be like him. I know that sounds like a little bit of nuance, but it's a really important difference that we're going to take a look at here. See, people wanted Jesus to become a king. What do kings do? They lead. Kings are served. Kings tell people what to do and inspire people and and are held accountable by people to provide what the people want as consumers. That's what the people wanted of Jesus when he was walking down that hill that day, to throw off Roman oppression, to get rid of burdensome taxes. Everybody wants a tax cut, right? To improve the economy, rid their world of false religions, reestablish the empire of the Jews so that they could once again be the head and not the tail. Some of them were even willing to fight for this king and serve this king's wishes as long as it meant getting the better life they dreamed of. But Jesus wanted something so much bigger. 
Jesus in this triumphal entry gives us at least three clues to the implications of what it means to be like him in our mission and purpose. And I think the first one is this. Real change is found in humility and serving. In a sense, we see this in the profoundness of him riding the donkey into town. Jesus says, if you want to be like me in your mission and purpose, you need to choose the path that moves you away from fame to service. You need to choose the path that moves you from your self-centered dreams to a life of serving the expression of God's love and grace to other people and their lives. Your life, your mission in becoming like Jesus is about saving others. That's what Jesus came for. He didn't come to seize power. He didn't come to force people into submission. He didn't come to change things politically. He came to be approachable so that even that the very essence of who we are could be changed from arrogance and the need to self-protect our image to being open and honest, that we could change from having to assert our rights to willingly choosing to give up our rights for the good and best of others around us. See, this story and this donkey confounds and ruins everything because it changes everything about how we believe and what, how we want this world to work. See, we believe strength and charisma and power changes things, and so we seek after that. But Jesus says real change and our real mission in life only happens when we stay humble and we serve well. Jesus goes on to show us, I think, another thing in this, that God and Jesus came not to fight the fight that we wanted fought, but he came to fight the fight that we never thought could be fought because real salvation is centered in the heart. See, Jesus didn't come to conquer nations. He came to change the human heart that leads to the problems we face in relationships and nations. He came to rescue us from our shame and our guilt that drives us to prove ourselves and one-up other people that leads to fights and jealousy and insecurity and pain and instead free us to truly love. He didn't come to restructure social order. He came to remove the problem of sin in our hearts that corrupts the way we relate to one another, that undermines love and causes problems in our social order. He came to fight the fight against our fear and our doubt and our greed and our pride. He came to conquer the war that goes on inside of us that war that can never be won by an earthly king. It can never be won by somebody's inspirational, motivational talk. It can never be won by wisdom or education or a politician or even someone in power using power properly and and the rules well. See, we want a savior to save us in the way we want, just like the people on that hill that day. And the way they wanted to save themselves was to be a self-justified winner, to earn our salvation. And see, as long as we continue down this path to have to earn our salvation, we will always compare ourselves to others. We will always fall into putting other people down and fall into being judgmental. We'll, we'll still not learn to listen well. and We'll still choose to paint others as evil and bad or ignorant when we disagree with them. As long as we want to save ourselves, we will never become humble because we will always need to protect our image 
and avoid looking or or avoid looking at ourselves with utter honestly because because we always need to be in this place of feeling good about ourselves. But see, the only way to truly feel good about ourselves, the only way to truly change is to see ourselves for who we are and also see Jesus' forgiveness and love for what it really is. You see, it's this God-man, Jesus, who, would, who could have been king over all the nations politically, but instead he was more concerned about paying the price for your sin and my sins so that you and I could be forgiven, we could be fully accepted and know that we are loved right now, even before we begin to change, that we can feel that sense of love and acceptance and forgiveness. And maybe that salvation is for some of you today to step into for the first time, for you to give up your idea that religion is about you making yourself good enough and influential enough, that you would give up today trying to save yourself and instead accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. Accept that even though you know and God knows that you have areas you need to grow in and yet you are completely right now, even before you start to grow, forgiven accepted, loved right now by him. And you always will be. It's a gift that God offers to us. You have to accept that gift. It's not something you get unless you accept it. And the way you accept it is going from the point of saying, I'm going to like you, Jesus, to saying, I'm going to be a disciple of you, Jesus, and I'm going to become like you and accept that gift of forgiveness and your power to do that. You can make that choice today. I love verse 16. It says the disciples didn't understand this. Well, of course they didn't understand it. I mean, they loved Jesus. They adored him. They wanted to follow him. They, they were even, if needed, willing to go to death and, and, and glory in securing their freedom. But they, they had no idea that meant being donkeys, right? They had no idea it meant death and serving rather than the glories of leadership, no matter how many times Jesus said it. It's really interesting. Just moments after this hillside celebration, Jesus actually looks back on it and reflects on this moment with some sadness. And I think it's in this sadness that we actually see the third point, which is I think is the most pivotal point in really understanding how God wants us to be like him in our mission and our purpose in life. John 12, just a couple verses later, verse 23, Jesus replied and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then Jesus goes even more introspective in a moment and says this. He says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus defines his mission 
my mission, your mission in life really clearly. And he goes back to one of his favorite types of illustrations, an agricultural illustration. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And here's the point Jesus wants to make. Real influence is multiplying, not gathering consumers who follow you. Now, let's look at that a little bit more. So, so even as we approach a king or a leader or a pastor or a new boss or a president who, who wants to bring change, we want them to make life better and easier and ensure success for us. I mean, if the economy doesn't go well, we typically vote a new president, right? If they don't get us what we want as a leader to consume, we typically change leaders, right? But Jesus says, no, I don't want you to look to that kind of path to solve things. We only have a certain amount of room for those kinds of leaders in our social order. Instead, Jesus says, I want all of you to lead like I do, to lay down your life, to save and empower others, to multiply people being like Jesus, not to gather fans and followers who are consumers. So the key question we have to really wrestle with uh, that defines the difference between liking Jesus and being like Jesus in the mission of our life is this. Are you a multiplier in your faith? Or are you a consumer who follows? Tough question. See, we too easily treat our faith like we treat politics. We decide to come to church regularly. We bargain that life needs to be easier if we come to church and do our faith stuff. We vote to follow Jesus. And, and if life is hard and death happens and healing doesn't happen as we expect, if, if our consumer expectations aren't met, if, if that triumphal entry of the big healing saving that sick loved one that's going to produce the testimony that we know will convince everyone in the entire world to follow Jesus doesn't happen, we get disillusioned with Jesus or we feel like we need to apologize for him. We think maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Maybe we shouldn't have laid all those palm branches out for him. I mean, what's he doing? Who is he? Where is he at in all this? I find it really intriguing that a few verses later in John 30, in verse 37, John, this, this disciple who, if you look back through the text, is the most faithful and fearless of the disciples during the course of the next week's events of Jesus being arrested, tried, beaten, crucified. He says this in verse 37. He says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. See, we focus our hopes on miracle cures for life, that we expect our king, whatever that is, to perform for us, whether that king is Jesus or a politician or money or business success or the perfect spouse or the perfect parents or children, whatever it is. As Christians, we also have these well-laid-out plans for God, curing all disease, alleviating all, all injustice and poverty and doing miraculous things that we know would be the answer to everyone coming to faith if we just, if God just did this, right? And yet John notes that even Jesus, many, many miracles, and they were many. I mean, just in the few weeks leading up to this, a couple weeks before this, Lazarus of dead four days raised to life back in front of a crowd, including religious leaders and a blind person healed and so many amazing things. And yet many people still would not believe 
and many of those who did believe didn't believe rightly or for the right reason. See, Jesus does do miracles. We know that. We've experienced them here among us. But he wants to deepen our hopes and our focus in mission as his followers and as church. And he says this is the way we get to that. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies. And here's what that means for us. See, our normal hopes are focused on getting things easier and better in life. Uh, But being like Jesus means we recognize that our leadership and influence for God is for us to lay down our lives in service to others. And we shouldn't expect that to be easy. And therefore, we shouldn't be caught off guard with feelings like, well, God doesn't seem to be here, so things must not be going good at the moment, right? We shouldn't be caught off guard by feelings like that. We'll face many seasons of our life when life feels like death, when winning feels like losing, when caring and ministry to someone is hard and we don't see the fruit as we are laying out the seed of our lives, sowing it into other people's lives. And as that seed sits there dying in the ground, struggling to see if it can break through the hard ground of pain and hardness and bitterness of people's lives into whom we're sowing those good seeds. See, Jesus wasn't focused on how he could mobilize people to serve him. He was focused on how he could multiply people to be like him, to serve like him. Jesus was extremely intentional. He brought his disciples everywhere he went. They listened to him. They saw him do what he did. And then they did what they saw him do, multiplying it. Jesus was about multiplication, not about gathering a crowd of adoring followers who were consumers who were just there for what he could give them. Jesus had a bigger impact he wanted to make. Later, that same John who wrote the main account we're reading today in in Revelation 1 writes this. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and our, our, his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And he says this, our mission is radically different than the way the world thinks about winning and influence. It's about multiplying. It's about multiplying freedom from sin and guilt one person at a time. It's about multiplying whatever God has given us, whatever gifts he's given you. It's about passing those on and giving those gifts and multiplying those same gifts in other people. It's about us not needing to seize positions or prestige and then protect our places of influence, but rather always be focused on cultivating and releasing the gifts of God in people around us, even if it means they become greater than us. See, the crowds wanted one king and one leader to lead them and give them all they wanted. But Jesus wants all of you to lead like him, to multiply and raise up more people to lead like him. So the question we need to walk away with today, every single one of us, is this. How are you multiplying? How are you multiplying? Well, We can't multiply if we never share our faith in God or God's faith in others or God's desire to save us from the inside out. 
We can't multiply if we aren't actively praying and talking and caring for people so as to lead them to this salvation away from the wrong focus of our hopes because earthly kings will always let us down. So multiplying starts by us constantly looking for ways to share and be good news, uh, to sow those seeds of God's love with our actions and our words in other people's lives. Multiplying can also be just as simple as you being a great faithful friend who when somebody is discouraged in their faith, you allow your faith to strengthen them during that time of weakness in their faith and walk beside them during that hard time. And multiplying can even be simpler than that. It can be as simple as recognizing what things you know and you do right now that help God's mission through us as a church happen and intentionally multiply that same ability or activity in someone else. So if you know how to lead a great small group, who are you raising up to lead a small group? If you know how to pray, who are you praying with? so that they also know how to pray and learn to pray. If you're great at believing in youth so that they can see how God made them and grow, who are you bringing along to multiply to also do that same thing with youth? It can even be as simple and mundane as if you're really good at technology or, or caring for facilities things, then how are you bringing other people along to care for this place so that we can continue to do ministry and put more money into ministry and less money into maintenance because we have more people caring for this place? It could be, it could be uh, you might be great at managing your finances and therefore are able to live really a generous life like you dream of. Who are you teaching and helping multiply the ability to manage finances well so they also can live their dream and God's dream for them to be generous in their life? You may be a person who knows how to study the Bible really well and apply it to your life. Who are you studying the Bible with so that they also learn to do that same thing? You may just be a person who is really good at caring for the sick and impoverished. Who are you bringing along? to teach also to do that. Multiplying can be so simple. Becoming like Jesus means giving our lives away to save, to restore, to multiply disciples. It's not my job alone as the pastor or the elders or the other staff. It's the plan and mission of Jesus that all of us would give our lives away to replicate his salvation. Because if a seed does not fall to the ground and die. It can't bear fruit. But here's the exciting part. Jesus says it in a different way elsewhere. He says, but if it does, it bears fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. See, God's dream for your life is to bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. But we only get it when we stop being consumers we become multipliers of the faith God has given us. doesn't matter if you've got a lot or a little. You multiply what little you have and more comes. Let's just stand and respond and worship to God. Lord, we just ask that you would come and that you would forgive us for the ways that we so easily slip back into consumerism and just wanting to make you into our own image. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and for each of us this week there would just be exciting moments this week where we realize the good that you've given us the beautiful that you've given us and the ways that you've provided opportunities for us to sow that seed in other people's lives and multiply it that our lives can become fruitful beyond our wildest imaginations full of meaning so Lord we just worship you now in Jesus name 
Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thank you.